recipients are and uh, when we get to the text itself. But before we get to the text itself, I want to cover the background. This is one of the things that we all must know and understand. We need to understand the background of this letter because it helps us not only interpret it accurately, it also allows us to be more precise in our interpretation and application. The book was written between 44 and 49 A.D., which makes the epistle of James the earliest written book of the New Testament canon. Now, knowing the date of this composition also informs us of where, uh, of where the church was in its infancy stage. Between the years 44 and 49 A.D., the Jerusalem Council, which is an event that everybody should know well by now, because we just read it in Acts last week, right? And there's also a pretty detailed summary of the Jerusalem Council in Galatians 2, which I exposited months ago. I don't know when, but anyhow, the Jerusalem Council is a very significant event in church history that's recorded in sacred scripture. But this event is not referenced at all. And scholars are convinced that James would have likely mentioned this historic and cataclysmic event to his readers, but he didn't. Also, the absence of any reference to Gentiles or any Gentile-related issues suggests an early date. So we understand that James was written in a very precise time in church history, a time when the universal church was so new that there were very, very few established local churches. Now, another important fact here. This letter was penned only about eight years after Paul's conversion, which was really before his ministry began. And that explains the heavy Jewish tone and flavor of James' writing. In other, in other, in other words, before Paul's ministry, there were very, very few Gentile Christians in the 40s. I don't mean 1940s or 1840s, I mean the 40s. There were very few Gentile Christians, because remember, the Apostle Paul was the Apostle to the Gentiles. Romans 1. For I am ashamed of the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation, first to the Jew, then to everyone else. Then to us, estranged, dirty pagans, right? So, the gospel at this time was so new that there were very few Gentile believers. So, it makes sense why we can date this book so early, making it the earliest written canonical book in Scripture. Now, something else we need to keep in mind here. Over the course of exposition, and I'll remind you of this constantly, kind of like I did with Galatians. We need to understand the theme. We need to get the big picture, what the book is about. What's the main point? What's the big idea? Now, whenever you write a letter or an email or a text, you have one main agenda, right? You're trying to get across something, and you intend it to be interpreted one way, right? You interpret what you write to somebody to be interpreted your way, the way you intended it. And it's the same thing when it comes to the Bible. Now, I shake my head in utter perplexity when I hear educated people, highly educated people, 
go around saying that the Bible is quote-unquote open to interpretation. Because if I said that, if I said that to Dr. So-and-so at UCLA, or I'm not California anymore, UW, if I say Dr. So-and-so, if you said about the Bible, guess what? That gives me the liberty to take your dissertation and interpret it whatever, however I want to. Sounds foolish, doesn't it? That would, that would be offensive to him. Now, we all have an intent when we put something in writing. And so did the biblical writers. But the problem, now this is where it gets tough for us. If I send you an email, you can call me up and say, dude, what did you mean by that? And I can say, oh, here's what I meant. And you'd be like, oh, okay, I got it. But I can't pick up the phone and say, hey, Moses, what did you mean in Genesis 1 when you said that God created the heavens and the earth? Because you know what? I'm getting tired of all these Christians dividing over the issue of creation. Can you just tell us flat out, did you mean 24 literal hour days like we know it or not? Wouldn't that be awesome if I could do that? Well, I can't call Paul and say, Paul, Christians are always fighting over this issue of election. When you wrote to the Ephesians and to the Romans and said, He chose us in Him and those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. What did that mean? Because if you could tell me what, that, what you meant by that, what you intended, we can save a lot of division. <laughs> Amen? But guess what? Paul's dead. I can't call him and ask him that. So what does that mean for us then? We have to, as Bible readers, get to the bottom of what the intended meaning is so that we do not mishandle the Word of God. Keep in mind 2 Timothy 2.15. I asked you to memorize that in Greek. Who did it? I'm just joking. It says, be diligent, do your best, do, do an excellent job to present yourself approved to God as a workman, a laborer, who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So one of the components that we need to employ as we accurately handle the word of truth, we need to understand the intended meaning here. And I'm going to give it to you. Paul's, or excuse me, I've got to stop saying Paul. I've been preaching two letters, okay? James simply intended this theme, okay? I put, it in, I put it in your notes. True faith works. To boil it down as simply as possible in three words, true faith works. That's the theme of this book. In other words, James lays out a series of tests that provide a standard to judge the genuineness of your salvation. That's why the epistle of James is considered the Proverbs of the New Testament. Because of the emphasis on wisdom and application. It complements Paul's emphasis. I meant to say Paul that time. It complements Paul's emphasis on justification by faith alone by focusing on the practical outworking of true faith. That is why you needed to understand very clearly and very much in depth Sola fide. Justification by faith alone, because if you have James without sola fide, you're just a Pharisee. 
doesn't matter if you're a doer of the word if you don't understand that you are saved by faith alone. So one commentator puts it this way. James is not a doctrinal treatise, but an intensely practical manual for Christian living. Yet that does not lessen its value since holy living is, listen, holy living and sound doctrine cannot be separated. Holy living, sound doctrine, you can't break them apart. You can't focus on being relevant. You can't focus on how to have a better life without the doctrine first. Because the relevance and how to have a better life is built upon the sound doctrine. Another commentator says this. This is very helpful. This epistle sternly insists upon Christian practice consistent with Christian belief. In other words, hypocrites are going to get mad at James. <laughs> so hypocrites are not going to like James at all. He goes on to say, it, it heaps scathing contempt upon all empty profession and administers a stinging rebuke to listen the reader's worldliness. Now here's what I'm going to, here, here's what I'm going to emphasize here. Ready? It's it stress upon the gospel's ethical imperative makes the epistle as relevant today as when it was first written. Relevant. I bet you didn't. Nev- I bet you thought you would never hear me say that word, did you? Relevant, because so many mainstream churches, so they focus on being relevant. And they go to great lengths and extreme measures to tell everybody in the community that we want to be relevant. But what they mean by relevant is not what I mean and what this commentator meant. We all need to do is stop and repent from being relevant in the world's eyes of self-centered seekers and just preach James. After today... You can walk out these doors and you can tell your neighbors and everyone that you know that you want to tell about our church that SVBC is the most relevant church in the valley now because we are on a journey through the magnificent letter of James. Amen? So we're going to be relevant. We are going to learn how to be a good practical Christian through this journey through James. Now, let's learn more about this James. Who is this James? Who is this author? That's the first point in your outline. Chapter 1, verse 1a. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the author. It's typical in ancient letters to start out your letter this way, to identify yourself as one who wrote it. But we come to this first word, James, and we ask, which James? Who is this James? Well, In the New Testament, there were four men named James. There was James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, Matthew 10, 3. Scholars do not consider him as a candidate for authorship. There is James the father of Judas, not Iscariot, Luke 6, 16. He is also not considered to be a likely contender for have written this letter. There is James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, Matthew 4, verse 21. But we learn in Acts 12, verse 2, that he was martyred too early to have written this book. So that leaves us with James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus Christ. Mark 6. 
So James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, wrote this book, wrote this letter. He's also known as James the Just because of his devotion to righteousness. He had at first rejected Jesus as the Messiah, John 7, but later believed after he was a witness of the Lord's resurrection. He is one of those people uh, in the list Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He went on to become a key leader in the Jerusalem church, sort of like a senior pastor today. He was, he was called one of the pillars of the church, along with Peter and John, Galatians 2.9. And as you know very well, he presided over the Jerusalem council, which again, to remind you, convened to decide once and for all and formally whether or not Gentile Christians had to obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved, or if salvation was grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. The verdict was the latter, right? You're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. So James stood up and said, don't trouble the Gentiles. So after a life of service to Jesus Christ, his half-brother, he was martyred in 62 A.D., according to Josephus, first century Jewish historian. Now, we could go more in depth about who this James is, but for the sake of time, we're not. Now, we learn more about the character of James and what he says next. We learn more about who James is from his own perspective. He identifies himself as a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase reveals that James was a humble man. He does not describe himself as James, the brother of Jesus. I probably would. Hey, my brother is Jesus Christ, you know. You might, you might want to listen to me. I know him better than all of you guys. He doesn't say James, the head of Jerusalem church. Right? He doesn't exert his authority. Or James, the one who saw the risen Jesus. I mean, that would be something to boast about, wouldn't it? Go around saying, I saw the Lord Jesus and you didn't. No, I don't think that'd be good. But he doesn't, he doesn't allude to any of those things. He doesn't, he doesn't employ his credentials as the basis for his authority. He simply assumes that his recipients are going to receive it. He doesn't need to mention those things. He, mentions, he, 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 he attributes himself the title of what characterizes as one who has bowed the knee to Jesus, a slave. Now, this word translated bondservant in the NAS, which is what I preach from, it's the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Doulos only means slave. And James identifies himself as a slave of God. Now, before we get deep into the meaning of that word and its implications, I want to address the issue of the translation of the word here. Since in most English Bibles, it's either rendered as bondservant, servant, and very few as slave. In the NAS, in the New King James, it says bondservant. In the NIV, KJV, ESV, it reads servant. And only in the Holman, Message, NET, and NLT does it read slave. So which is it? 
Because wouldn't you say there's a pretty big difference between a slave and a servant? I mean, for starters, a servant is a volunteer or someone who's hired to do something. Right? I'm just a servant. I'll just, I'll just walk away and, 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 and bounce when I feel like it, right? If you're hired, you don't like your boss, you just quit. And he can't do anything to you. But it's not like that for a slave. A slave is owned. And I bet you'd be willing to confess that you are a servant of the church, right? I bet you would be willing to confess that you are a servant of your household. In fact, I hope you would. But who in their right mind goes around saying that I'm a slave of something? Or someone? James did. So did Paul. By the end of this message today, you will identify yourself as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now back to the translation issue. If doulos is best rendered as slave, then why translate it any other way? And there's got to be a reason. Well, here's why. Here's what one commentator says. He says, quote, There's too much stigma with the concept of being a slave. It's too strong a downside. It's too humiliating. It's too belittling. So they, the translators, opted to cover the word by replacing it with servant, bondservant, and, and eliminated the word slave, except when the New Testament talks about an actual physical slave or an inanimate object like slaves of righteousness. The translators said it was just too negative. And to us, that's completely understandable, isn't it? Especially in our culture of independence. Especially in our American culture, where it's offensive and it's demeaning to talk about slavery in any other way than a bad way. But as you'll see in a minute here, remember, getting back to what I said, getting the intended meaning, not placing our meaning on top and applying it from that mindset, Being a slave in that time, this was written, could have been, wasn't always, could have been a very good and positive thing. And being a slave of, being a slave of God is definitely a good thing, if you know who God is. Now, what in the world does it mean to be a slave? Well, before we get into that, you understand what the word means. Now, what, is it, what does it mean to be a slave? We're going to spend some time talking about what it meant to be a slave and then a slave spiritually. So what was it like to be a slave in the first century? Well, to be more precise in the meaning here, slave doulos was one who was a permanent, one who was one who was in a permanent relationship of bondage to another, being altogether consumed in the will of the other. Permanent relation of bondage is the idea. The slave was a person deprived of all personal freedom and totally under the control of his master. At the time this was written, there was about 12 million slaves in the Mediterranean world, which meant to put another way, if you think mathematically, 
One out of every five people in the Roman Empire was a slave. One in five. And if you study this, the, the history of slavery, not just American slavery, it was just, it was about every, it was everything a human relationship could be. There were places where it worked very well. The master of the slave provided food, provided clothing, provided housing, and protection. And if you were blessed enough to be the slave of a Christian master, one who was generally saved, it, it, it was a good deal. Because Paul commanded Christians who were owners of slaves, slaves in Colossians 4.1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Which implies the owner of the worldly slave was also owned by a heavenly master, right? So be careful how you treat your slaves. Because you, you, you have a master too. And by the way, I mean, the media and our worldly culture, they, they, they go out of their way to portray Christian slave owners as really harsh and uh, justifying their actions based on their interpretation of the Bible. You guys have seen that, right? But if one was a true believer and interpreted the Bible rightly, they wouldn't act that way. So there were situations where the relationship was good. And God never condemns the institution of slavery. He condemns the mistreatment of slaves. So the point here is that James's readers did not think the same thing that we hear when we hear the word slave. To them it was nothing offensive and strange. To them it was common. To them, slavery was just as much a part of normal, everyday life as anything else. Now that we know what a slave was during this time, the next question to ask as we figure out what it means to be a slave of God and of Christ Jesus is this. How was James a spiritual slave and by answering that, you can understand how this concept of being a slave of God can work out in your life. So understand that to a Jew, spiritually speaking now, it was a great honor to be a slave of God. Why? Because it meant that you had a very unique relationship with God. And it's the same for us. The concept of true believers being slaves of God, has continued in the church age. It means to be a slave of God. It means that he owns us and we exist solely to do his will. It means that he's in charge, he commands, and we obey. And we view ourselves, listen, we view ourselves in light of that truth. Not a very popular teaching, is it? It's right there in Scripture. 
Now, the question that comes up often is, how do I identify as a slave? Well, at the right time, identifying myself as a child of God, a joint heir, a friend, a member of the body of Christ, a branch, and a sheep. Because Scripture says that true believers are all those things, right? So which is it? Are we a slave or are we a friend? Well, we can't mix those metaphors together. We can't pit those against each other. We can't choose which one sounds nice and we like the best and go with that one. Because all of these metaphors gives you a facet of understanding, an aspect of our relationship to Christ. So when Jesus said, no longer do I merely call you slaves, but a friend, Jesus was not saying, you're no longer a slave. He said, you're my slave, but you're also my friend. I'm giving you the benefit of also being my friend. We're still as slaves. And as we wrestle with those things, as we wrestle with understanding how those metaphors work together, guess which metaphor, guess which title that we're attributed to as believers, guess which one is inside of which our full understanding of salvation is best seen? It's doulos. It's slave. And I'm going to explain to you why. If I were to ask you, what is the foundational reality that defines what it means to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? Or to put it in other terms, what is the fundamental reality that distinguishes the believer's relationship to Christ? Or, what is your great confession? You know what your great confession is? Or what it should be? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Romans 9, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, you will be saved. Not if you confess, Jesus is my friend. Not if you confess, Jesus is our shepherd or savior. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That means you're a slave. You become a slave, then you are graciously given the privilege of being a sheep. Then you are graciously given the privilege of being a friend of Jesus. He first becomes your master. This is how Christians always refer to themselves in early church. This is how we should too. Only a slave has a Lord. Only a slave has a master. Which means that's what we are. And now here's where it hits home for us. The implication, if Jesus is not your Lord, then he's not your Savior. It's very simple. To be a slave of Christ is to identify yourself as being totally bound to the will of him. It means that you are zealously submissive to what he wants you to do. And to think how he wants you to think. And to care for what he wants you to care for. How are you going to do that? 
How are you going to submit and think and care for what he wants to? You have to read the Bible, right? You have to, you have to get your orders from your master through the word of God. And it also means that you should hate what he hates. It also means that you should reject what he rejects. What are the, some of the things that you should reject as a slave of Christ? For starters, you should reject all sin and moral evil. You should not be concerned one iota with self-esteem. There's a lie our pop culture teaches us that we should be concerned with self-esteem, but that is a lie. The Bible says that we are to count others more important than ourselves. We have to put God above everything else. We have to be low-minded people. We should hate all forms of false teaching and self-righteousness. You know, there was a book written a few years ago entitled The Jesus You Can't Ignore. And the premise behind that book was calling Christians to go back to a holistic biblical view of who Jesus is. Because in contemporary Christianity, it's a fact that part of Jesus' personality is so often emphasized to the neglect of the hard sayings of Jesus. Case in point, the Pharisees, right? Jesus was harsh. Jesus at times was very harsh. And to the pen of Titus, pen of Paul to Titus, he also commands Titus, a pastor, sometimes to be harsh. Read Titus 1. In the imperative voice, Paul told Timothy, rebuke those Cretans harshly. It's the same form, it's the same command, it's the same idea as all the other commands in Scripture. But we never hear, we're supposed to do that, do we? Jesus was harsh sometimes. But what was he harsh against, right? He wasn't just harsh for the sake of being harsh. He was harsh against the self-righteous and the false teachers, wasn't he? The Pharisees, who forsook the word of God for their tradition, which made them, which made them whitewashed tombs. Read Matthew 23. It's, it, it's very poignant. He says, woe to you, scribes and the Pharisees. That is a warning of condemnation. Warning of condemnation. And we could spend more time talking about the implication of being a slave, but just remember, if you are saved, have confessed Jesus as Lord, you are a slave. Which means he is your master. And you will live to do as he pleases every day and every second of every day. That's what it means to be a slave. And that's what our brother James, the brother of Christ himself, identified himself as. So we've considered the author. Now for the remainder of time, we're going to consider the recipients. The second half of verse 1. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. The twelve tribes here, it's, it's, it's simply another way of saying the nation of Israel. The twelve tribes reflect the historical origins of Israel. 
that were originally made up of people that descend from the twelve patriarchs. And as a result of the Assyrian and Babylonian victories, most of the tribes were exiled and scattered. Which is why James adds, who are dispersed abroad. Now some translations read, scattered among the nations, or very interestingly, in the dispersion. So here we get yet another seemingly significant difference in translation. And if you don't really care about the language, I'm sorry, not really. The reason why I explain the language is, number one, it gives you more in-depth precision, but also there's so many people who have different translations, okay? So I know some people are reading the NAS, and some people are reading a different version that says, in the dispersion, and are thinking and are being distracted with, why is it different, okay? Well, for those of you who are curious, which I hope you are, the reason why there's a difference in translation here again is because the, trans, the, the translations that went with the rendering in the dispersion, listen, all they did was transliterate the Greek word instead of translate. They transliterated it, tra- transliterated it, not translated it. The Greek word is diaspora, which literally means scattering. Okay, so for those that might be confused what I just said, to transliterate a Greek word is to just put the Greek letters in English letters. Like agape, right? Agape, you guys heard that word? That is a transliterated word that means love, okay? But when you translate the word, you put it into English, an English word, not just English letters. So agape is the transliteration Love is the translation. Okay, so here, diaspora is the transliteration, and scattering is a literal translation. So either way, you're left with a literal translation or a transliteration that you have to look up. That's why it's different. Now, the word became a technical name for all nations outside of Palestine, all over the known world, where Jewish people had come to live. Because of the of the exile, because of the persecution, the Jews who were once centralized into a southern kingdom and northern kingdom were scattered among the nations. They were scattered among all over Palestine in the known world. In First Peter 1, 1, he uses the same word. Now the context here, it's, it's specifically referring to Jewish Christians, not just Jews in general. It's referring to Jewish Christians who have most likely been converted near or in Jerusalem, and may have been influenced by James in some way. So his primary audience here, this is important, his primary audience here are Jews who have fled among the diaspora due to persecution. And he writes them to give them confidence and hope to persevere through their trials. Because we'll see in the coming months, true faith will preserve. True faith works. True faith works. The theme of the book. And just lastly, wrapping up here, he adds a very brief greeting by saying, Chiro, which is translated as greetings. It was a common secular greeting of the day. It just meant to be glad. Rejoice. 
And what's interesting here about James' greeting, just one word, just one word, and compared to Paul's greeting in his letters, which are long and rich, right? Many words. James uses as little ink as possible in his greeting, and he gets right to the meat. And that's what I like about James' style. He's getting right to it. Forget the fluffy stuff. Let's get down to what matters. And, but there's one helpful thing to point out here. Because we know who James is and because we know who he's writing to, this brief greeting is not intended to be just a mere formality. You know, kind of like how we are with our greetings, right? Sometimes we're genuine in our greetings, but most of the time we're not, right? You walk down the street and you say, good morning. You, you, you see someone say, how's it going? You walk down the street and say, hello. It's, we do that without really thinking about what we're saying. It's just something we do, right? Because if you went someone up to someone all the time and said, how are you? What is the expected response? Right. <laughs> You're not going to stand there and, 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 and give all your grievances, right? <laughs> you should try that sometimes until someone responds. Someone actually did that to me. I, I asked somebody at work, How how's it going? And they said, do you really want to know? And I panicked and I said, no. <laughs> so, so, so sometimes we're genuine. So I'm not meaning to say that we're nev- we never are. But, you know, th- there's... Those greetings we say just because it's part of our culture. But I I don't think James meant it that way. To to these readers, he wasn't conveying just a theological treatise. He wasn't conveying just some news, right? He's giving them revelatory exhortations from him. and, and, And to these people, to these precious Jewish Christians, they're his spiritual father and shepherd. So this was no formality, even though it was so short. It's no formality. He, he really cares for these people. So this morning we've set the stage for James. Some of you are probably wondering, how, how is Carl going to preach for 45 minutes on one verse? I hope I just did, proved you wrong. And there's more. I could go more in depth about the biographical and historical stuff, but I don't want to put you to sleep either. So we've set the stage. We, we've considered the background, the theme, and the author, and the recipients. And that's very important for us to know so that we could become workmen or have no need to be ashamed rightly in the Word of God. When I preach and teach, I'm also helping you and showing you how to interpret the Bible. That's one of the benefits of expository preaching. Okay? So you have to understand the theme, the background, the author, the recipients. Now we can go. So I'm confident that as we journey through this book in the months to come, that it will be an effective instrument of your sanctification. Because I know it will be for me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that we can know it and study it and understand it objectively. Help us to Glean what you want us to from this letter uh, written by James. I pray, Lord, for everybody here that they will be encouraged and edified and strengthened and convicted through this study. In Jesus' name, amen.